Wow. What a seriously lopsided week. I mean, Republicans, high five. You've got a new senator. The campaign finance regulations many of you hated so much got struck down by the Supreme Court. Uh, It looks like you might actually now be able to boot Ben Bernanke. Democrats, yeah, ouch. Healthcare reform, financial reform, uh, carbon emissions caps. No wonder Obama tried to get so much done so fast. Uh, Suddenly, all the news coverage has turned to uh, the failure of the president's first year. Uh, Even Air America... The station of the Obama generation, at least according to the the billboards here in town, Air America is going bankrupt. And I have to say, I'm really going to miss being able to barely kind of tune it in in some parts of the metro area. You know, no matter what your political stripes, and we have all kinds listening to our program, I know, uh, I think you have to admit we're heading into a period now where not very much is going to get done. And that, to me, that is depressing because... Uh, there's a lot of crap that needs to get done. But you know what I do when, you know, when I'm feeling down? I do what a lot of people do, I think. Um, I go into a room and I write and record a barbershop quartet with myself. A little something like this. Get ready for stagnation, policy frustration. Things are bad, really bad, but you'll just have to be patient. There's no time for action for the next election. We're on political vacation here in Stagnation. Uh, I feel better. I'm Jeff Horwich. This is In the Loop. And I got to tell you that Scott Brown, the guy who uh, got elected to the Senate in Massachusetts, strikes me as a very interesting guy. Among other things, uh, just the nature of the special election, maybe, but the speed with which he switched from campaign mode to, I don't know what you'd call governing mode, uh, statesman mode, I don't know, uh, was just astounding uh, to go from trashing health care reform uh, in the campaign to the day after standing next to John Kerry and talking about how you really like a lot of what's in that bill is um, mysterious and and amazing and maybe gives one uh, some amount of hope that people can work together in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk a little bit later. Actually, Santa's been looking into a question that a listener sent us some time ago regarding uh, politicians and the ability to get anything accomplished in Washington. And uh, so he'll be in with that. But first this episode, we are going to dive a bit more into Haiti because, of course, that is still the biggest story in the world. And we've continued to get interesting responses from people who have something to share with us about it. One of those was from Mark Marshall. This guy's a physician's assistant, and normally he lives in Waukon, Minnesota. Uh, But when the earthquake happened, he got on a plane, I guess, and hightailed it down to Hispaniola, to that island, and wound up in the Dominican Republic. He wound up in a border town. It's called Jimene. It's on the Dominican side. And, of course, people are streaming across looking for medical care. Mark has connected up with a Haitian doctor there, and they're performing operations. In particular, they're doing a lot of amputations for adults and children, and they're doing it without sufficient anesthetic. No IVs, no morphine. None of that, if you can imagine. So Sandin was able to get Mark on the phone for just a few minutes the other day. As you probably would figure, when you're calling down there, you kind of take what you can get. So we were able to capture this anecdote in particular that I thought I'd share with you here as we start the show. This is Mark Marshall, a physician's assistant from Minnesota, and he's working just across the border from Haiti. The first night we were here, we had 50 people who were, you know, gravely injured. We did not have any pain medication to treat them with beyond pills. We had essentially Tylenol and Motrin. And um, it, an, an incredible thing happens. There's a huge Haitian community in Jimenez, 
and uh, about dark, uh, people from the Haitian community came into this church, and they start to chant, and they start to sing, and they sing in Creole, which you can't understand the words, but some of the tunes were tunes from when I went to Sunday school, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and and some things like that. But they sing it in Creole, and they they put their arms up, and they rock back and forth, and they sort of sing themselves to sleep that way. The patients really absolutely believe in it. They lay there with their their amputated arms, their amputated legs, the wounds that are are worse wounds than, than anyone can really imagine, and they they rock back and forth, and they 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 raise their arms and they swing their arms back and forth, and they chant and sing, and it seems to have just an an incredible calming effect on them. It literally gets them through the night. It it allows them to to, to settle in and and to sleep through the night, and then the same thing happens in the morning. It's like they they put themselves to sleep with song and they wake themselves up with song, and it's just an incredibly spiritual experience. Now, the, the the strength and the courage. And the determination that these people have with, with you know, with, with Tylenol and Advil for their, for their pain medication. Spiritual anesthetic, I guess. Now, Mark's daughter is in what we call our Public Insight Network, so she got our email looking for people with Haiti connections. And another intriguing response from that group rolled in the other day. And this one, I think, might jump off nicely from the picture that Mark just painted there. I opened my email earlier this week, and I had this beautifully crafted essay, really, sitting there that began, I love Haitian people. Now, with the earthquake, we're all getting kind of a crash course in Haiti, but watching carnage on the news is kind of a tough way to really get to know your neighbors, and they are our neighbors, really. Maybe we can do a little better than that. So I've got the author of that response on the phone with me here. Her name is Tanya Richard, and she lives in Evanston, Illinois. Tanya, thanks very much for talking with me. You're so welcome. So tell me briefly about your family history and why you are so connected to the Haitian people. Uh, my mother and father are Haitian. They've been here 45 years. I love the culture. I love the sound. I am strongly connected to pretty much anyone I meet who hmm. comes from Haiti. <laughs> well, talk to me first about the language and the way of speaking. The language is music. I'm actually an actress, so my ear is sort of very much in tune to it. And throughout my career, I've tried to master the accent and you know, I'd like to say that I tried to master it because I'm such an artist and mm-hmm. I like to have a full toolbox of things, but really I wanted to master the accent because I get extra points whenever I tell stories about my mother <laughs> if I could also sort of slip into her voice. Wait, what is so distinctive and special about the accent? Well, distinctly when Haitian French is very different than Parisian French, which is sort of light and airy and lovely. And Haitian French is sort of... Um, vigorous and verbose and musical, and everything has emphasis, even like the or it. Sort of the best way for me to share what's special about it is to do it. Sure. <laughs> I could do a little quick... Uh, Let's hear a little, a little uh, bit. Is, it, is this... Of my mother yeah, this is your mother about, we're going to hear here. Yeah, okay. so um, this is my mother talking about my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Oh, uh-huh. so, um, yeah. She is amazing. She is not... She's incredible. She... She... She connects with people, Tanya. I have never seen anything like it. She is so smart, Tanya. Oh, Tanya, there is something special there. That is, that is something good. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are the implications in the language and the way of speaking for uh, the people and, uh, I don't know, the way their minds work? It's easy to sort of generalize it and make it seem as if, you know, like, well, what's up with these people? <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is it's just strongly connected to this passion and this embracing of life. And 
It's just the most gorgeous sound. I think you wrote in your response, uh, I have never met a Haitian without presence. That's right. Meaning what exactly? Well, my parents in particular. So my father looks like a Haitian, Sidney Poitier. Mm-hmm. And Very my nice. mother is 5'11". Both have sort of this regal presence about them. It's in the shoulders. It's in the chest slightly out. It's in the head up. You mentioned even the way that uh, Haitians will pose in pictures. Yes. Um, you don't smile in my family in a picture. And so there are countless pictures of my parents at my sister's wedding, at my wedding, and they have this look on their face. You wouldn't necessarily know it was a happy event. (laughs) Now, they don't look sad, you know, Mm -hmm. but they just look so proud and so confident. So this uh, Haitian je ne sais quoi that you've been describing here, how do you think that factors into a situation like this, you know, crushing poverty and you pile a horrible earthquake on top of it? Well, I think, unfortunately, the way it manifests in terms of the perception of Haiti is that it is, you know, all tragedy all the time. That's the part that struck me out of all of this, is what is being lost because of the earthquake, and what has been lost, really, for such a long time in relation to Haiti, which is really any sense of what Haiti is or who Haitians are Mm -hmm. outside of poverty and corruption and an earthquake. I think people aren't aware of the history of Haiti in terms of, you know, them being the first black republic, the inspiration for slave revolts across the world. I I think the music, the culture, the food, I don't know anybody that would think of any of those things Mm -hmm. when hearing about Haiti. Immediately when you hear the word Haiti, sympathy is elicited. I don't in any way say that isn't welcome, but it's just unfortunate that it can't also be combined with who we are and what the culture is mm-hmm. and what we've contributed. I presume you've been talking with your uh, your mother and your parents since the earthquake happened. Mm-hmm. How were they taking it in, in their regal way? Well, along with that regalness is a sense of privacy. So it would be sort of hard one to kind of get my mother to open up exactly about how she's feeling about what is going on. My family is safe. Uh, The last of my family has moved out of Hades, but they're, of course, completely engaged in in following the story. I mean, I think that, for me, one of the things that's been kind of frustrating is having to wait to really be able to do something, because when it all first happened, my first instinct, I have to admit, on a small scale, was, my gosh, what if I could go there? Mm -hmm. What if I could go actually help? Um, But I'm six months pregnant, and I had to have a a two-and-a-half-year-old, so that wasn't going to happen. But then I immediately called the Haitian Congress in Evanston to find out what can be done. Can we put together some supplies? I'm really looking forward to getting in there and doing that and to let it continue. And so that, a year from now, two years from now, I'm still actively connected not just to the tragedy but to the culture itself. Mm. When you pull back a bit and, and look at the map, Haiti is really quite close to the United States. Yeah. Uh, do you think Haitians feel like there's a, a cultural affinity there? Some sort of like, you know, hemispheric or North American kind of identity that they would share with us? I don't. Hmm, okay. <laughs> um, growing up, I really felt a part of another culture. 
I mean, I am an American, and I mm-hmm. still feel that sometimes. I still look at the way things get digested or consumed in this country sometimes and feel as if I can roll my eyes and say, ah, Americans, <laughs> as mm-hmm. if I weren't, you know? Yep. And I, I still sometimes can see things through the veil of being a Haitian. I wish I had that veil sometimes. Yeah. Just some sort where I could say, you know what, I'm not really I know, exactly. one of them. I get to use that sometimes. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not really American. As we, as we seep into political gridlock here, exactly. for example, for the next couple of years, I'd like to be able to step back and just mm-hmm. say, oh, Americans. Exactly. Those silly, silly Americans. Oh, but I can't do it. Bless um, your hearts. I almost hate to ask you, as a, as a final question here, um, did you hear about this Pat Robertson crap? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's so preposterous, yeah. and, and that's why it's gotten so much attention. Right. I don't know, the, the, the roots of that story, is it something that even a Haitian would recognize if somebody were to refer to, you know, the pact with the devil? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, in my research and my knowledge of Haitian history, there isn't a hint of that that is true. Even that there's folklore or a story, you know, a Mm -hmm. fairy tale. It's just never been about that. The history is very distinct in terms of what happened and who the leaders were. And and there's there's never any kind of, you know, corner you turn that talks about... um, pact with the devil. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that from yeah. <laughs> you. And uh, I'm glad for everything you've been able to share with me here today, Tanya. Thanks so much. You're so welcome. It's been a pleasure. That's Tanya Richard. She is an actress and a playwright living in Evanston, Illinois. One of her plays is based entirely on her Haitian family, and that one's called Selecting Memory. Tanya's in our Public Insight Network, as I think I mentioned. Uh, if she weren't, we would never have known she was there. And you never know what the news is going to do, and when you too might have a thought or an insight That'll be useful to us. We would love to have you in that network. If you're not uh, there already, go to our website, intheloopshow.net, and just click the Join the Network link on the right-hand side of the page. Tonight, I think it is, George Clooney and company are uh, getting ready for the big Haiti telethon. Justin Timberlake, Taylor Swift, Christina Aguilera, uh, a lot of the usual suspects. uh, And that's great. But you know, when disaster strikes, there are lots of artists who want to step up, uh, use their talents to help those in need. They don't all get the George Clooney invite. So here at In The Loop, we have had a pretty big week. We pulled together an amazing group of recording industry legends to write and record their own song for Haiti Relief. I'm very excited to actually see what we've got here. We're calling it 10 Artists, One Clear Message. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Waits. Well, we don't know about it. The legendary Bob Dylan. Neil Young. Fellow Canadian superstar Alanis Morissette. Together for the first time, Snoop Dogg and Aaron Neville. Dave Matthews and Axl Rose. Oh, man, let the people say it was out in America fresh. Wow. 
Eddie Vedder and Macy Gray. Here's Tom Waits with the number to call. No, we won't do that to you. Uh, won't do it to myself. 20 seconds of Tom Waits impression, I could hardly talk for the next three hours. Uh, anyway, Anna Wagle helping out with the uh, the women's voices there. Sandin Totten as Bob Dylan and the rest of those. Um, those were the real people, uh, as a matter of fact. Lots of real opportunities to help out, of course. And uh, as we mentioned in the last show, just remember to do your homework. Here's an interesting fact, because a lot of you, of course, are big public radio fans in general. The FCC, Federal Communications Commission, has given permission for public radio stations around the country to actually raise money for Haiti. And normally they can't do that. You know, public radio is not allowed to just pick a cause and raise money for it. But every now and then the FCC will give special dispensation. Uh, They did it for Katrina and they did it for 9-11. And they have done it again now for the Haiti earthquake. Just a little public radio current events trivia for you there. Speaking of Sandin Totten, he is, as promised, here in the studio now with me. Ba-bum! Nice Dylan, by the way. Thank you. Sandin's been thinking about a political question that a listener left on our website some time ago. Uh, and if a listener leaves a question on our website and Sand is looking into it, chances are we're talking about the Scribbit. Scribbit! And the Scribbit, of course, is a little widget on a website where you can uh, go and plug in your own question and have me look into it. Right. If I like it. And this question's been lingering on there a little while, but we picked it up this week after what happened in Massachusetts. And let's just think about it. I don't need to get too specific because everybody knows we are looking at kind of a likely political stalemate here for a while. There's another election coming up uh, in the fall. And so let's just talk about health care, right? Everybody feels all that much more precarious now. And for Republicans, you feel that much more hopeful, you know, that you can make real progress because you've got this number 41 now you picked up in Massachusetts. So you've got conservative Democrats who might be disinclined to vote for health reform because their voters might not like it. You've got Republicans who might be inclined to vote for it uh, in their brains, but uh, when you think about the electorate, it makes it somewhat difficult. Right. Right. And this question the listener sent in offers a tempting solution for these kinds of situations, perhaps. What is the question? The question is, why not have term limits for every political post in the country? Only one term. Yes. Why not? Indeed. Tell me about term limits. Well, the cool thing would be all these people would basically just vote what they think the country wants because they're like, well, I don't have to run for re-election, so I'm going to do what's right and things might actually get done. And right now, you know, there are no term limits on Congress. There's a term limit on the president, of course, mm-hmm. um, two terms, eight years. Some Congress people, of course, put term limits on themselves when they get elected, but they can break that at any time if they decide they want to. Right. And there's some governors who have uh, term limits imposed by the state. But mm-hmm. for the most part, once you're in Congress, you're there and you can stay there forever. Well, as long as you learn how to play the game. Right. right. Well, and that could have its own host of problems. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, this group, U.S. Term Limits, says. You know, they're a single-issue organization, and basically they just want term limits on every post in the country. Their president, Philip Blumel, says, you know, you get a politician in office, and if they stay there too long, they're basically training themselves for only one thing. You get involved in politics, and you become good at it. You learn the ropes. You, um, and the, the, the career that you're learning when you're doing that is, is politics. 
I think that to represent the people, though, you need to have a broader breadth of experience than just politics. So when you're saying uh, you learn politics, you mean politics like the four-letter word kind of politics. I do. <laughs> That's right. I mean how to slap people on the back and give people the twinkle in the eye and uh, make uh, good friends in important places and how to uh, log roll and make deals and, and all the parts of politics, which is important. But you just don't want that to be the only skill that they're bringing to the table. If you have somebody that runs the Financial Services Committee and he's done nothing but be in the Congress for the last 30 years during a financial crisis, that does not make me feel comfortable. You want to see sort of a more diverse group of careers sure. and backgrounds. It's, it should be like, uh, you know, the, the village people. <laughs> right, exactly. So I'm sure the village people do a lot better than the U.S. Congress in most cases. <laughs> well, certainly, uh, the, uh, certainly the filibustering would be a little more uh, colorful. <laughs> no doubt. Well, certainly they'd get this uh, gay marriage thing nipped in the bud, right? Right. Um, well, that, that all makes uh, a lot of sense. Right. It? Well, there's a really big argument against term limits. Basically, we're losing the ability to choose in a democracy. That's Congressman uh, Jose Serrano. He's a Democrat from New York. He represents uh, this area, you know, the Bronx and some other parts. Yo, yo. <laughs> yep. And uh, he's been in the House since 1990. And six times he's proposed to repeal the 22nd Amendment, which is the amendment that says the president can only run for two terms. He's against term limits on a moral ground. He basically thinks, you know, it just screws up democracy. You know, what's the biggest issue in the country right now? The economy, right? Well, everyone admits, even conservatives and and right-wingers and Republicans, that the last day that Bill Clinton was in office, the economy was in great shape. But what if the American public had decided, let's keep this guy because his policies put us in this situation? You know, these are choices that the voters should make. Of course, Philip Blumel, the U.S. term limits guy we heard from before, he has a retort to that. And he says, you know, actually... Uh, having term limits would help democracy because when someone can just keep running, they've got this unfair advantage as the incumbent. To use the U.S. Congress as an example, the re-election rate for an incumbent running for his or her own seat is about 95%. You pretty much have to die, retire, or be indicted to lose that seat. To which, of course, Congressman Serrano says... Why is that bad? There's nothing wrong with the system if people uh, re-elect the same person. And how do you think you maintain your office? You certainly don't maintain it by just by having a Facebook page like I do. You have to do work. People have to feel comfortable with you. I think it's almost disrespectful to suggest that voters can make these decisions. Well, I don't know. A good Facebook page certainly does help an awful lot. <laughs> I think the candidate with the best Facebook page uh, is going to win. But uh, just thinking about what happened this week, you also wind up with this really fascinating situation where even though you have all these incumbents who are relatively safe, the handful of seats that are not safe or that are open, you know, like when Ted Kennedy dies, you have such incredible political pressure put on these very few races. Um, I don't know if that's healthy or, or unhealthy, but wouldn't everybody love to have that kind of attention and drama and importance placed on the race in their district. Well, if we had term limits, that would be the basic political landscape all the time. Every seat would be up for grabs after just a couple terms. And, uh, you know, I think what it would cause is politics to be, you know, for better or for worse, a lot more heated. Would it be heated at the same time as more was getting done? I guess that's the... That's the promise. That's the real question. Well, but uh, we're not going to actually get a chance to experience that promise, huh? 
Well, there is a bill in Congress right now that would set term limits for congressmen and senators, but like everything else, um, it's uh, pretty much buried under the weight of the health care reform. The weight of all the n- health care reform that is probably not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they're busy not doing health care reform. Uh, Some other things will have the to The pipes wait. are clogged. Uh-huh. Let's just face it. All right. Another interesting question from our Scribbit. Thanks a lot, Sandin. No problem, Jeff. Scribbit. So the last couple episodes, we've been dragging out this uh, 2010 is my year of fill in the blank question that we had put out to our peeps. And today, I think we may have the last of those. Um, Might not be, but it's the last uh, that I'm aware of. This one comes from our Facebook page, I think, loopfacebook.net. If you're not there, we're nearing um, 2,000 fans. Very close. So help us out. Here's a listener from the East Coast who is barreling into the coming year. My name is Jen Chura. I'm from Long Island, New York, and 2010 is going to be my year of taking my foot off the brakes and traveling down a road, whether it be the right one or not, is yet to be found. I have a master's degree in education, and I can't find a teaching job, and the point of getting that was to have a normal life. I originally went for a bachelor's degree in opera performance and decided that I didn't want to be off on, you know, a crazy tangent of traveling and auditioning. And uh, and I thought, well, if I'm teaching, that'll be great. And so I took that safe route, and it didn't work out. So now I'm thinking, well, do I take a safe route again and go back to school to become a nurse or just audition for theater or write my book or just be a crazy um, out-of-work actor or... <laughs> I have to pick a route. This is 2010 is the year of picking a road to go down. Whether or not it's the right road, I have to pick a road. I'm getting too old. <laughs> Godspeed, Jen Shura of New York. And on that very appropriate note, let's swing into the second in this series of interviews that we're doing now in the new year. Now, Sandin and I have been calling these our starving artist interviews. And that's not necessarily literally true, but the idea was to have a set of conversations with people who, in the midst of this big recession have decided to follow their their dreams and their artistic dreams specifically and try and make a go of it. And the latest person that uh, we've got in the studio to talk with me today is Laura Brown from Minneapolis. Laura, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And she's a, a visual artist, and we'll have lots of time to talk about what kind of art she's doing. Uh, the guy we talked to last time was laid off and didn't have much of a choice in a way but to, but to go for it. You actually quit your job in July. I did. To do this. What kind of work were you doing? Boring work. (laughs) I was working at a really small software company answering client phone calls. So talking on the phone for six hours a day, Mm -hmm. answering people who were upset or had questions. And it was was a lot of talking, a lot of stressful mental work. It was just, it was overwhelming. Did you just hate it, hate it, hate it every day more and more? Yep. Uh, I had arguments Mm. in my head with my boss on my way to on, during my bike ride to work, yeah, and then I get there and I was all worked up and. In my personal experience, mad. that's a very bad sign when you're having <laughs> mental arguments yes. with bosses because real arguments, at least, you know, there's some outcome from that. But right. there's nothing, nothing that can come exactly. of mental arguments in your head with your bosses. I have a studio, but I wasn't using it because I never had any creative or physical energy to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, totally burned out. Totally frustrated, totally not making any progress in that way. I started saving a little bit of money. I signed up with a temp agency. Were you not planning initially to just go full-on 
artist mode when you quit? No, I was, you know, so, but the temp agency kind of thing was like, uh, I should have some kind of backup. And then there was a little phase where I tried to get fired, uh, <laughs> so, sort of. Doing but what? Didn't really work. Well, that's the thing. I couldn't follow through with any of the things that people suggested. You're you too know? nice a person, I bet. Show up for work drunk. Yeah, yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> No. Well, I mean, if you really want to get fired, <laughs> the trick is getting laid off so you can get right. unemployment, right? Right. So somehow, and I don't so, know, convince yeah. them that you're uh, not necessary. Right. Not just um, uh, a drunk jerk. Right. So nothing really seemed to, you know, fit in with what I felt good about doing. So mm-hmm. in the end, I just quit and it felt really great. Now, I was reading some of your old uh, blog posts and you said that uh, your boss took it like a 12-year-old. Yeah, he didn't. I mean, I, I gave my <laughs> two weeks mean? notice and then he never talked to me again. You were dead to him. Yeah, basically. Yeah. He did not give me a second glance. Wow. In those last two weeks. So no wishing you well, you know, in your new endeavors. No um, spread your wings. Good luck, kid. Yeah, no, none of that Man. at all. Some of your coworkers <laughs> gave you a, uh, a bit of a send off, I hope. Nope. Nobody? Nope. I got flowers from um, one of my clients. Actually, a lot of coworkers came up and were like, wow, I wish I could do that. You're getting out. Wow, that's that's really great. And I was like, yep. What's it going to be like on the outside? Nobody, yeah. not a, a sheet cake or, or nothing? Nothing, nothing. Aw. Nothing. All right. Well, at least you were not leaping into another cubicle, right? No. I mean, you were, you were chasing your dreams here. What did, what did you do art-wise, I guess, the first day after you quit? I just remember, you know, really trying to get into the routine of going to the studio every day and... Um, you had to, so you had to make a job out of it. Exactly. I mean, did you keep regular hours I, at your studio? You know, it's interesting. It's been like what seven months, six and a half months now. Mm-hmm. I think just now I'm really starting to get into the the groove of getting up early, going to the studio, being there all day, kind of treating it like a job. Because if I don't, then I don't go until noon, and then I sort of, you know, like my mind just isn't prepared. So how do you get your day started? Well, first I have to have coffee. That's how I start my day, period. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I get there and uh, usually what I'll do is sort of turn the music on, sweep the studio, sort of just like be there for a little while. It takes a little while for the heat to come on. Mm-hmm. And then I turn on the music and usually there's something pretty danceable. So I'll, you know, dance around the studio a little actually. Yeah? That's, yep. Whatever it takes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't tell that to a lot of people till well, now, I guess. You just did. <laughs> So yeah, I'll, I have a variety of different kinds of projects that I'm working on right now. So printmaking is a fine art medium that's based on the concept that you create your image on one surface and then you transfer it to paper or cloth or whatever. So yesterday was a really warm day. Right. I use ink plates and etch them in nitric acid. Mm. Can't have that inside. So, you know, set up my etching tray in the snowbank and, and spent the day hanging out with the toxic chemicals outside. <laughs> you know, in the open air, at least. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. For a warm day in Minnesota is when you can set your etching plates out in the snowbank. <laughs> exactly. What are the financial pieces of the puzzle here that make it all work? That's a good question. Is that a funny question? Uh, no, <laughs> it's just, um, it's a fluctuating thing. Uh-huh. In addition to, like, making big... Prints also make little cards, like I made a bunch of Christmas cards. and So actually, December was a really great month and a really productive time. And I do a little bit of graphic design. You could wake up one morning and, and see a mean email from the bank and think, oh, no, this is really horrible. But then later in the day, you could be walking down the street and somebody calls you and says, I really like your work. Come to this gallery and show it to me. And you never know what's going to happen. What's your mean email from the bank? Oh, gonna be about. you have insufficient funds. Oh, I see. Just the <laughs> run-of-the-mill run of uh, insufficient mean funds. Email. Huh? I mean, you, you didn't have to, 
to go to the bank? Do you have to get financing to launch into something like this? It's kind of been my assumption that the bank's not going to give me any money. It's pretty absurd to quit your job and be an artist mm -hmm. in this economy. I mean, I think it's it's laughable. You know, who does that? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when you wake up every morning and you, you're completely miserable and you think, I know what would make me happy. And if I got hit by a bus right now, um, would I want to have spent my last days sitting in a cube at a job that I don't like? No. I think that people are happier when they're taking risks. I don't expect the financial hardship to last forever. It's my year to apply for a Minnesota State Arts Board grant. There are other residencies and fellowships that are coming up. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the like next winter, I'd like to be applying to grad schools. And then also applying to art fairs like the Uptown Art Fair. Has your financial flow gone from, like, I don't know, how would, how would you characterize the restriction in your finances since you did this? When I was at the job, I really took that as an opportunity to pay off a lot of debt. I don't have that many expenses. I don't own a car. I'm single. I don't have any children. Mm -hmm. I don't shop. Ever? Hardly ever. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> for, for food, I hope, once in a while. For food, once in a while. But, you know, it's not like I have this clothing addiction that I have to support. Uh -huh. I don't feel like my lifestyle has changed a whole lot. Mm -hmm. um, Are you still renting, say, the same apartment Still live in the same apartment. Still, I mean, my studio's right around this, the corner, mm -hmm. so I still have my studio. So there's money coming in, enough to pay the rent. Enough kind of. to buy food and coffee. Kind of. There's days when it... Or there's months that are better than others. Well, we're streaming this interview uh, live, video streaming it on, on Ustream, and we've got a question from our listener, Mark, who was in Paris uh, by Twitter, I guess he sent this in, who wants to know how you determine the price that you deserve for your work. That's a really good question and something I'm kind of working out. Um, I take a couple of things into account. One, I read a book about starting a business as a woman. It's called The Boss of You. And this might not be helpful for Mark, but it's a, you know, book about starting your business as a woman. As a woman. Is it different as a woman? Um, it must be. Isn't it? a book about it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never tried to start a business as a man. <laughs> you know, you think about the number of hours you're going to be actually producing work plus supplies. Mm -hmm. Take the hours that you spend in production. Think about the hours you're going to spend not producing but doing like administrative stuff. So if I do 30 hours of production a week, but I really work 60 hours a week, I have to kind of even my wage out over all of those. Okay, so another question from our live video streaming audience here. Heather Lynn wants to know, how do you deal with feelings of being undervalued as an artist? I think taking the risk to quit my job and be an artist has taken a lot of emotional stamina. It takes a lot of, you know, being your own best friend and tapping into resources that maybe you didn't know you had. Sort of just pep-talking yourself and reaching out when you do need help and do need encouragement. When I start to feel anxious or freaked out, I sort of have a little list of things to do. One of them is call a friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, just you like know. who wants to be a millionaire. Right. <laughs> yeah. So who's your, who's your phone a friend? You know, anybody who picks up. <laughs> 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 to start hitting the speed dial on the cell phone. A lot of times it's my mom. Yeah. Yeah, she listens to a lot of crap. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was looking through some of your work this morning, and it's, it's beautiful, very distinctive stuff. Thank you. So I wish you great Thank luck. You. And uh, Laura, thanks for coming in to share your story with us. Great. Well, thanks for having me. That's Laura Brown, and uh, her website is pretty easy to keep track of in your brain. It's laurabrownart.com. The uh, live video streaming that I was alluding to there is something we've just been trying out a little bit sporadically over the last few weeks, just to add a new 
tool to the uh, to the arsenal. Adds a little spark to our to our routine. And I don't know exactly where it's going to go. I tend to schedule them with all of 10 or 15 minutes notice. So uh, I'll try to get a little better about that. If you want to know when we're doing it so you can participate, you can uh, follow us on Facebook. I'll post there. You can follow us on Twitter. And I believe if you go to ustream.com, you can also look up in the loop and you should be able to subscribe there so you'll get a notice when we uh, schedule a broadcast. Well, that's what we got for you today, folks. Uh, No big fancy whiz-bang ending. I think I ended last week on a Tiger Woods joke, so that ought to do me for two weeks. In the Loop is produced by Sandin Totten and me. We get a lot of help from Anna Weggle. Remember to uh, share the MP3 with a friend, uh, tell people about us, and all together we will get bigger and even better. I'm Jeff Horwich, and I'll talk to you next week.